Welcome to the first episode of the Crafting Code podcast, where we discuss the importance of doing the right thing at the right time with the right tools. My name is Alan Stewart. I'm a software architect, and I have liked computers from an early age. And so I decided to get my CS degree, and I've been getting paid to write software for over 20 years now. But I've only been writing software professionally for about seven years, as I've learned more about the ways that are effective uh, that are actually professional for writing software. I'm Dave Adza. I'm a CTO. I have loved playing with computers since I was in elementary school. My interest in computers range from games to code to systems and teams creating value. If you find me at a meetup or a conference, I will talk your ear off about the latest book I've been reading. My name is Matt Baker. I am a software architect. Uh, in my younger years, I enjoyed playing the game Mortal Kombat and compiling Linux kernels. Uh, at some point, someone started paying me for computing about 15 years ago. I never asked them to stop, and, and here we are. All right, so with my co-hosts today, we are going to tackle our episode topic of crafting software. So what does it mean to craft software? You know, it's a great question, Alan. Um, in preparation for a talk I was giving at one point, I started asking people, what does it mean to you know, craft software well? And one of the answers that Dave Adsett gave me, crafting software means that you build the right thing at the right time using the right tool. Obviously, I'm very proud of that. Proud enough that we put it in the intro to our podcast. Um, for me, crafting software has always been an aspiration, but like Alan, I spent a large part of my career not even knowing what it meant. I remember distinctly being a young hotshot programmer with five years of experience, and I knew I could write code to do just about anything. And I was on the cusp of figuring out what these object things actually are for anyway. And as soon as I knew, I was going to tell you. Unfortunately, I'd never heard of testing or TDD or any of the practices that I now find essential in treating software as a craft. One of the things that I like about the word craft is that it kind of gives it this artistic element. And anybody who's been writing software very long knows that there are so many ways that you can write software. There's lots of different ways that you can write code to get it to do something. And uh, which one is good, which one is bad, sort of the aesthetic of, of software is something that I think that this concept captures really well. Yeah, this idea of, the, Alan, you touched on it with writing software professionally. There was a time you were writing software, but then you became a professional software writer. And Dave, I, I, can't, I can't remember exactly what you said, but similar idea. There's this point where you realize there's got to be a better way to do this. And I don't know how you get to that point other than just doing it wrong for a little while. So, so I don't want to disparage anyone who's new in their career saying like, well, you just haven't figured it out yet. It's none of that. It's just after you screw up the same thing over and over again, when you see an antidote to that, like it really clicks. Like TDD for me clicked relatively quickly because I thought, holy crap, I can get feedback at line by line as, as I'm writing code. I can be getting this, these green lights are going, right? And, and I understand things are working. And that's just one instance of something where if you hadn't 
spent time with the pain that is the absence of something like TDD, you, you're really not ready to to see how how um, impactful these practices can be. And so you might just not pay them the credit they deserve until you get burned a few times. One of the things that I was just thinking of is before you got here, Alan, we were talking about people in software development. And we were talking about how every individual who writes code is unique and they're not fungible. They're not replaceable. You cannot go to the 7-Eleven and buy a six pack of identical software development resources. (laughs) Despite the fact that many of the managers I've worked with in the past have behaved as though that were true, every person has a unique path and every person learns to craft software in a different way. When you get to the point where you've got 15 or 20 years of experience, you get really set in your ways. And if you sit and think, well, at least for me personally, like I say, everybody's unique, right? Maybe other people have a better way of learning how to do software. But for me personally, I look at the practices that I think are important and the processes that I think are important and all of them come back to answering a specific pain that I experienced for a long time in a, in a certain way. Like this was the first really good way that I found to know that the code I contributed to the shared repo wasn't going to break everything for everyone and crash the company into a brick wall. That's assuming that I was working somewhere that used source control. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it really speaks about this idea of context to me, right? I'm, you can't walk around and say that these practices work in every domain, but you know, in a given context, you start to learn what, what's going to work for you. So I wouldn't say that the act of crafting software is, is predicated on using TDD or using version control even. I, these might be table stakes, granted, but, but I, I think there's this other point here of you've been around for a while, you've seen the pain, and you start to see the, the results of it. I, I had this little saying I like to say, which is a, a problem has context. The solution is derivative of a problem. Therefore, a solution has context. So does TDD always work? No, but that's not really what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is do something for a while, find where the pain is at, and then enjoy the solution being applied to the pain. Right. You know, I, I was just thinking about some of the early space shuttles and the early rockets that we sent up into space. And I know that they unrolled all the loops in the software they wrote for them. And so now I have a policy on my team that you have to unroll all of your loops because I learned that, wait, no, I don't think that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, context, right? You, you get one chance to shoot a rocket. Right. You get a bajillion chances to ship I, to prod. They're, yeah. They're, they're different things. I don't want to be on or at all associated with a rocket that gets an out of memory error <laughs> while it's in flight. Um, I hate to say this to my users, but out of the millions of requests we get per day, if you get an exception on a dozen, I consider that a win. Yeah. So kind of related to that, I think it's interesting what you were saying, Matt, before is there's, there's a lot of learning that you have to do. Like you have to experience some of the pain for you to appreciate the practices that are often associated with these ideas of crafting code. 
but at the same time, you can learn a lot from them, right? So like you can look back at NASA and things that they did with launching rockets and you can say, okay, well, you could unroll the loop. Why would you do that? When would you do that? Is that a good idea sometimes? What, what made that a good idea or not in what they did and figure out that context like you were talking about? Does, does it make sense to me in my context right now? So now that we've talked a little bit about kind of in general, let's, let's go for a more formal definition. Anybody who wants to know more about the idea of software craftsmanship could go to manifesto.softwarecraftsmanship.org and learn about some of the ideas that have really kind of been foundational to this movement within the industry. They talk about craftsmanship as a way to create professional software development. They talk about really leaning on kind of the agile manifesto and saying, hey, it's not just about making working software, but well-crafted software. It's not about just responding to change, but we're steadily adding value. It's not just about the individuals and their interactions, but building a community of professionals and not just customer collaboration, but also productive partnerships. Yeah. And even in this manifesto, I see these, these learnings applied, you know, so if you take the top one, not only working software, but also well-crafted software, year one of writing software or being paid to write software, you're all about working software. You don't have a concept of well-crafted software because you don't understand what less well-crafted software produces. So it's just, I'm just going to write software and I'm going to get this fat paycheck for it. And it's great. (laughs) Right. But then you experience year three or four of like the congestion collapse that occurs when all the legacy code just takes over and you start to ask questions like, well, is there a better way to do this? Like totally. everything was all coupled together and that company I ended up having to quit because it was horrible and there were these release trains and it was a big collaboration mess every time. Blah, 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 blah. Right. Like you can highlight all the things that occur when you're not focused on well-crafted software, but it takes some time. And I think in each one of those statements, you see like this application of wisdom, which is we did this thing first, it worked okay, but then we asked how we could do it better and we got to this next stage. And I see that in the manifesto. Yeah. One of the things that I think about a lot now with code is that getting it working, that's just the beginning, right? When I was first writing software, I was like, okay, I got it working. I'm done. But now as I work with uh, you know, mentoring developers that are earlier on, they're learning. Getting it working is an important step. You have to be able to get to that point. And, and now it's more like, very good. You have just begun. <laughs> you, <laughs> well, you're not done. You just started. In some ways, I blame my education for that behavior because education is a, a little bit transactional. And you can always, like, it doesn't matter if you turn in your first draft because you're never going to have to look at that paper again. Like, so what if you started doing your research Sunday at noon and you finished writing the last word of the fifth paragraph midnight or 1230 and then turned it in the next day, everybody else did the same thing and you were graded on a curve anyway. So the thing that that prepared you for was doing poor work quickly and never returning to it. And it turns out that for most of us, we have to live in whatever mess we made until we learn to clean it up. And so that, to me, is what well-crafted starts to talk to. 
you did it in a way that when they ask you to improve it, you can. And I, I remember having some discussions with a couple of people involved in writing this manifesto when it was fresh and new. And I wanted more of a definition for well-crafted. And I think at some point it kind of boiled down to go do software for 20 years and then come back and you'll see what I'm saying. <laughs> I can't explain it to you without you doing it for a period of time, which is a super unsatisfying answer when you're coming at it from the beginning. But there's something I like about it as well in that, that you know, going back to that kind of aesthetic of code, but also that it's more than just code, right? Because it's easy to kind of get into that uh, navel gazing space where you're just like, hey, we're going to gold plate the code or it's going to make it amazing all the time. And you lose sight of these other aspects that they talk about in this manifesto. The one I wanted to touch on next is the steadily adding value. I can write code all day that provides no value whatsoever. And I might enjoy it a lot. I have a really good time writing the solution to some other problem or perhaps the solution to no problem. And it works right? It's working software. And I might even go in and make it really well crafted software. It's, it's very elegant. It uses the best dependency injections. It, it has immaculate variable naming and it, it's, it's so perfectly useless because it doesn't provide the value. Yeah. You know, it reminds me, I had this somewhat working theory that I'm kind of confident in that says every engineer at some point will attempt to write a CRM. Like someone <laughs> will attempt to write the elegant solution to everything. Right. And, and, and then you start to get into this, this idea. And I think you nailed it by saying, you know, steadily adding value. Well, to what? Like, I, and i also believe this ties back to the well-crafted software. You're doing this for a purpose and the purpose is not terse code. Right? The, the purpose is not elegantly expressed classes that model the real world. Like, none of that's the purpose unless for some reason that is. I don't know what you're up to. But um, typically, it's someone's paying me to solve a problem. I must solve their problem. And in my mind, well-crafted software means I've mitigated the risk, which typically with software means less is more. So the simplest solution that could possibly work feels like a um, good stand-in for you know, well-crafted software. Yeah. And, and it depends on what, what you value, right? So if you're working at a company, then business value should be your driver. Does this thing help the business make money? Does it help the customers of your business to do whatever that they want to do? And if it's not, then it's not related. But in another context, like if you're working on open source software, you might have a different context of what, what provides value. And maybe it's making something that is really easy for other people to contribute to and improve the whole. Or if you're doing a project on your own, then the value might be completely in learning something. And, and you say, oh, well, I don't know how to use this database. And so the entire value of this project is in teaching me something. And you write different code. The nature of how you craft code changes based on, on the kind of value that you're, you're adding. So there are two things that kind of come, came to mind around steadily adding value. And... The first one is this idea of code inventory. I've heard, 
I've heard a lot of people talk about the horrors of working in a waterfall environment. And when I quiz them on it, typically nobody's actually worked in a waterfall environment. They've worked in an environment where there was no process or what felt like a very slow process. But I worked at a company once for about 18 months that did the rational unified process, which is the very definition of waterfall. We did two months of planning and then we did like eight months of coding and then two months of QA. And then we had the week long panic where we released a year of work into onto our customers, whether they wanted it or not, whether it was ready or not, it was release time. And we did the release once a year. I worked at the company for one release. I'm not sure that any of the code that I wrote there was, I don't think I ever saw it go into production, but because I joined too late and I was working on a side thing and it was a whole weird thing. And to me, all of that is inventory which has a huge cost and provides no value until it's in the hands of customers. So you're not steadily adding value. You are at best, I don't know. I don't even know what the right word is. You're like infrequently adding value. And the other thing I think about when it's steadily adding value is that I've seen projects where they go really, really fast at the beginning and then they hit a plateau. And no matter how much new code is written, no new value is produced. The, the customers aren't getting anything new for what all the input that they're putting in. And so those two things come to mind. Like what, how are we avoiding this inventory problem and how are we creating this system that is giving people new things that produce value for them? They answer questions and solve problems. Yeah, you know, th this point uh, one among many is one of the reasons i love talking about this this subject because i guess i what i want to continue with is is a quick story from uh dev intersection in like 2014 in las vegas uh i, I think that was the year i took a workshop from a guy named yuval lowey i believe is his name and i also watched him speak and the workshop was interesting it was great but when he got up to give his speech he, he asked everyone to raise their hand uh, if they were a software architect. It was a talk about architects. And everyone who raised their hand, he proceeded to like berate them for the next 10 minutes about not actually knowing what they were doing. And it, it was interesting. But I don't know how I feel about that. But something he said really stuck with me. He said that if you write code that, that turns out to be a bug that causes your company $10,000 in damage, let's say, you should pull out your checkbook and write a check for $10,000 and give it to your company. It's a bit like hardline, I get it, but it does speak to this idea of a community of professionals. So Dave, what I heard you just say was, look, this waterfall strategy doesn't work. We've, we've adopted this strategy and it doesn't work. And I believe it takes a professional mindset to interrogate the way that you're working and ask, is this, is this the best way to achieve the outcomes, outcomes that, that I'm after? Oh, Definitely. Definitely. And speaking to the concept of community and problems is that we don't intrinsically know the answers to these problems. It requires a lot of work. And the, one of the key things that helped me 
turn the corner from getting paid for writing software into being a professional software crafter was discovering a couple of local communities that I could join that had some answers to the problems I was facing, whether it was from the perspective of the process we're doing and we're having these challenges and I don't, I don't know how to solve them or I don't know how to get along with this person and what can I do to work more effectively with that person to things like we keep shipping code and every time it's full of bugs and we don't know what to do and we keep getting slower and slower and we do more and more QA and the manual QA script takes half the sprint and we don't know how to go any faster and get value to our customers. Finding communities of other professionals where somebody's been there before and can help you or where you've been there before and can help them. That totally resonates with me uh, because for a lot of the time that I was learning how to write code, I was kind of just doing it on my own. I mean, I got a CS degree and so I learned a lot in college, but what they teach you at university is very different than what you do day to day writing code in the industry for a business, for a startup, for some tech company. And so I had to do a lot of learning and I felt like I was doing so much of pulling myself up by my bootstraps. I would figure things out. Uh, I remember when I first learned how to do unit testing, I had no idea. All I knew is that I was working at a big enterprise company and they kept saying, you've got to write unit tests. It was coming down from the CTO who was saying, everybody should be writing unit tests. But nobody in the department really knew what that meant or how to do it. Eventually, one day, I just decided, I got to go and figure out how to do this. They keep talking about it, so it must be important. It must be doable. Somebody knows how to do it. And, and I had to learn but that who myself. Knew? Who knew? Who knew? <laughs> but finally, you know, I figured it out. And a lot of my career felt that way is that I was pulling myself up by my bootstraps, trying to figure out what is it that I'm trying to do? How can I improve myself? And eventually I started learning about some books that were helpful, but it was when I found the local software crafters group that really opened my eyes because suddenly I was with a bunch of other kindred spirits. They were having the same kinds of problems. They were experiencing the same kinds of things that I was where they were saying, oh yeah, I'm also trying to drag my team kicking and screaming into writing unit tests and learning from them, figuring out what, what problems they were solving, what problems they were having, what solutions might help me was just super invaluable. Yeah, you know, you talk about dragging people kicking and streaming into writing unit tests, which is appropriate at times. That's the way that it feels. And and I'm also thinking about you saying your CTO had said, you know, we must be writing unit tests. Uh, in my mind, what's happening there is there's this debate or this argument or this persuasion for people to do the right thing. Right. We've identified that unit tests are the right thing. So please, everyone do the right thing. And what I really like about the software crafters group and groups like this is I believe that there's a subtle change in the conversation from do the right thing to we all agree we should do the right thing. How do we do the right thing best? Right. So it's not Alan, you should write unit tests. It's Alan, do you prefer the London or the Chicago? And can we talk about the merits of both? Right. And it's that latter camp that I find that community of professionals, you know, yeah. when I sit down to these conversations at the, the Utah software crafters meetup, it's great. 
It's great. You know, one of the more memorable ones that sticks out in my mind is how do you do TDD with property-based tests? You can't have that conversation if people aren't willing to talk about unit tests. You have to be kind of bought in and sold and have done that for a while. And then you can talk about this, this more advanced thing. And that, or even know what is property-based testing, right? Like the whole experience, right? It's like the, the, the domain becomes so much bigger. Well, and this kind of reminds me of one of the ways that knowledge advances and it advances in a lot of ways, right? One of the things we hear a lot about recently is that science is advancing as people are bringing ideas from multiple disciplines, cross-discipline collaboration, whatever. But we also advance when we get very deep into I don't want to say echo chamber, but it's kind of like an echo chamber where everybody around has a deep context around a thing and keeps reaching further and further. And you're just digging down together to build out and discover and explore the, the limits of knowledge. If you know test-driven development, if you know unit testing, would you use property testing on everything? Why, when would you, when wouldn't you, why, if I've never even heard of it, what would make me want to go explore it and who kind of discovered this topic anyway, who came up with the concept of doing this type of testing for the types of systems that I work in. Yeah. And I think that's really important that you have a constant influx of people that are coming into the community. Uh, because as each person enters the community and changes the dynamics slightly, they're bringing something else to the table. They're bringing some additional experience or perspective. Yeah. Dave commented on something about, you know, it's this cross pollination of ideas that um, is, is advancing things. And I think there's not, I think, but rather that resonates with me, you know, and, and Alan, to your point, um, you can't have that if you're all existing in this echo chamber that Dave was talking about. So it does require this having new people come in with, with new perspectives in order to maybe, you know, you know, I don't know, it's wild and it's far fetched, but it's definitely possible that someone comes into the group that had an experience in some completely different domain, maybe social work or, or psychology or something. And they're able to apply that to software and move the thing forward. So one of the things that gets brought up a lot in, in this discussion about software craftsmanship is this idea of like master, journeyman, and apprentice as like these different levels. And I think that that in some ways models community, but in some ways it, may, it maybe doesn't quite fit. You know, there was, a, there was a book by Pete McBreen, Software Craftsmanship, The New Imperative. That was one of the first books that really discussed this concept in general. And it kind of laid that down. This, this pattern of going from apprentice to master and also kind of this vision of like a medieval guild model of software development that really came into play with this book. But how does that relate to these communities of professionals? How does that re- relate to this idea of growing in the craft of software? I think that one of the important things is that we go through phases as we progress. And it's not to say that you know, you check off your merit badges and you get your new rank and now you're a senior software developer level three. Like none of that ever really resonated with me well because everybody is going back to earlier where I was talking about how everyone is unique. Everyone has a 
unique set of and collection of related and collaborating and self-reinforcing skills. So there isn't a way to really measure a software developer's total skill. But there is this concept of, as a novice, I need someone to tell me what to do and to a large extent how to do it. And then as I start to master that one way of doing it, I can start to break away from those rules. I understand when they apply and I start to understand when they don't apply and I start to understand new things. And if you use some of the other models of skill acquisition like shuhari, it's you follow the rule, you break the rule, and then you become the rule. If you've ever worked with somebody who's been working in a domain for a very long period of time, they will sometimes say stuff that makes no sense like, why, why do we do X? Oh, well, we do X because it's the right thing to do. And I know it's the right thing to do because I've been doing X for this long. Like, I don't even know what you're talking about, man. Like, that's not even a reason. It, but it is a reason in that person's mind because they've had so much experience and maybe they've tried a hundred ways to accomplish that end. And it always comes back to doing it this way works and other ways don't. And they don't have time to tell you the hundred other ways that they've tried and why they think that this is the right way in this context. Yeah. And I, <clears throat> sometimes I think we get stuck into this value judgment conversation when we talk about master journeyman and apprentice and coming to what you're saying, you know, this is the answer because I've done it for 20 years and, and whatever. Um, and I think that's true. And I think it's okay to acknowledge that you, you gain wisdom when you do a thing a lot. And it's not to say that if you're an apprentice or a journeyman that you're not as smart as the master. That is not what is being said. But what is being said is, look, when you do this thing enough, when you write software enough, you're going to pick up some tricks that are not because you're smart, not because you're versed, not because of your IQ, but it, it's, it's just because you've been doing it. So you, you pick up these things. So I think that these master journeymen and apprentice, at least in part, uh, just capture the fact that this person's been doing it for a while. Now, I, I'm, I'm not trying to say that, you know, there isn't a difference between the engineer who's written software for 10 years and the engineer who's repeated one year 10 times. That exists and that's true. But, you know, what I'm trying to say is if, if you're open and you're trying to constantly progress, um, just engaging is going to take you far. And, you know, again, it's not that if you haven't done that engagement, you're not smarter than the person that had, but the, the master, the journeyman, they've just been around for a while and they've been trying to do some things. And sometimes their answer really is, you know, go write software for 20 years and then ask me again. I know that's a crappy answer, but sometimes that's reality. Well, and I think part of that goes to the fact that we don't necessarily have the language to talk about it well. It makes me think of a couple of other related domains. For example, in chess, they say that a master or grandmaster has played a hundred times more chess than somebody at whatever the next tier down is. And if you go to Thinking Fast and Slow by Kahneman, he, they talk, he and Traversky? I can never remember, remember his partner's name on that book. But they talk a lot about how we train our pattern matcher in our brain. And one of the things that we do by seeing things over and over and over and over and over is we basically train our brain to 
skip all the hard thinking part and go straight to an answer. And nobody wants that. And we actually talk about that in software development is like when we train AI, when we train machine learning algorithms, they just skip right to the answer. And then what? Like we want to know how did you get that answer? What are you considering? Do we want you to consider those things? Is, is that a valid input? Like I don't care what color the person's eyes are. Are they going to crash their car into that pole? Maybe they picked up on the wrong things. And that's, that's a thing that is also worth considering is, this is one that gets me a lot is, sure, I've been writing software for 20 years, but how do I know that I've trained my pattern matcher on good data as opposed to very biased data? How do I know that I'm not leading a team off a cliff at full speed because I'm pretty sure that that hill just curves down on the other side instead of dropping abruptly 500 feet. <laughs> I haven't but looked to the... But it's fun, though. It's, it is definitely fun. Like, it's super fun right up until the last minute. <laughs> or second. Right. It's like uh, bankruptcy, right? You do it a little at a time and then all at once. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and, and not to harp on, on this point, but you, you just said a few times, how do I know? And again, I think you're capturing this idea of professionalism where you know how to get it to work. How do you know that that's the best way to do it, right? This, this how do you know, I think um, if, if you're able to establish these feedback loops to start answering that question, then you're starting to become a professional, right? Because there's a myriad of ways to do it. And, and you're not asking, can I do it? But you're rather asking, what's the best way to do it? How, how do I know that the solution is the best? And I think it's that line of questioning that's really just going to, it'll progress you in whatever craft you're doing. For sure. So if software crafts, craftsmanship or, or crafting code, if these you know, are about these professional ideas, right? Well-crafted software, value, adding value, communities of professionals, et cetera, then what is it not? How do we distinguish I know, Dave, you often talk about this idea of, well, how you define something in large part is what is it not? So what is not software crafting? I think you're right. I definitely do that. I say that often. Okay, you've told me what a thing is. Now teach me the other part of the pattern so I know when I haven't found one. And that's the harder part to learn. I think one of the things that comes to mind for me is that Crafting software is not about creating art. I go back to what is a craft? It's a thing that you make and sell for value. You're trying to create value for someone else in exchange for some kind of compensation. Art exists presumably for its own sake. Sometimes people create professional art, but I, I feel like in general we have an idea as a society that they've their art has lost something for it if they made it to, for money. Yeah, it's like art is expression versus art is product. Those, those mean, are different things. I still sometimes play that song, sell out <laughs> tonight. Yeah. So as we established earlier, I do not have perfect pitch. I have, I think, the exact opposite of that. But, um, but how do we know, Dave? We're only going to know if you sing, and then we can check. Yeah, and it's going to be really hard. We're not ever going to get the not test for my singing ability. 
You'll just have to trust me. Okay. I've done it for 20 years and it's always terrible. What a crappy answer. (laughs) (laughs) So there's some amazing software art. I love it. I love software art. There are people who've created languages that you can't even use. There's one that I've dabbled in called Rockstar, kind of playing on the idea that we could all be Rockstar developers and screw up all of the recruiters' plans (laughs) if we just learned how to write one program in Rockstar, which transpiles to JavaScript or something. So you're saying when they ask you if you're a Rockstar developer... You say yes, but it's not, yes, I'm like a 10 times multiplier unicorn developer, but yes, I actually just write in the Rockstar language. Yeah, I've, I mean, I have <laughs> one Rockstar program on GitHub, and therefore I am a Rockstar developer. I, more so than anyone else I know. Like Probably. That, that like, I have more Rockstar cred. <laughs> yeah, that tracks. That tracks. <laughs> but there's, a, there's so much art that is software. There's uh, this idea of a quine which is software which when executed generates its own source and there's this i don't know some genius or group of genii who have somehow come up with this ouroboros quine that starts with a ruby file and then goes through a hundred programming languages until the output is the same as the input i don't know the types of things that blow me away they're very They're awesome in the truest sense. They create awe in the observer who is trained to understand. But they definitely are not valuable to my customers or probably anyone else's. There's other really cool software art like the International Obfuscated C Competition. If you want to see some code that is artistic, go look at some of that. My favorite was either the winner or the runner-up for the 1989 contest. It's a really cool program that, when executed, generates the value E. Anyway, (laughs) I would say one of the things that software craftsmanship or craft of software is not is creating art. Yeah, I totally agree. And one of the other things that... I think sometimes with the idea of software craftsmanship, especially the, the word craft or craftsmanship often evokes this sense of perfectionism. Getting back into that medieval guild mindset is like, well, we have to create the masterpiece. And that's how we'll know that we are master software developers. I remember this anecdote about a speaker who really just did not like this whole idea of crafting software at all because he felt like everybody out there who was doing that was trying to create essentially Fabergé eggs. You're doing it, you're gold plating the heck out of this thing just because that is how you're gonna make like this perfect art piece for its own sake. And that he felt like that that wasn't valuable, that wasn't delivering value. And personally, I feel like he just misunderstood the space, that really it is about delivering value. It is not perfectionism for its own sake, but it is delivering some kind of value. Yeah, I think you know even this word we're using value um i'm going to i'm going to change it out for a second and 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 use the word quality whether or not you delivered value is a judgment that someone's going to make right sure uh typically the the customer that you're trying to serve so so maybe there is a world where the value is in the perfect if statement or like the the flawless ternary operator you know like maybe that exists but um 
you should ask yourself if that's the domain that you're in. When I hear this, this anecdote about the Fabergé egg, I think, well, and I agree with it as long as the domain wasn't someone wanting a Fabergé egg, you know? So, sure. so, and, and I'm, I'm dragging this out to an absurd degree, but what I'm trying to say is that quality is subjective. And value and, is too. And value is subjective. And so when you're, when you're writing code and coming back even to something you were saying earlier, one of the things you don't learn about when you're, when you're taught maybe traditional computer science is ascertaining your customer and what they need, you know, and, and that's just another skill uh, of, of professionalism. And so when we talk about, can't remember one of the things out of the manifesto, but anyway, I guess what I'll end with is this idea of art, this idea of, of overdoing things. This is, uh, it's all subjective. I think so really what it comes down to is you know are you optimizing for for your customer receiving value or not maybe that's something yeah. maybe this is like an overgeneralization i'll regret later but that's how i'm feeling right now for sure i read that uh 93 of paint splatters are valid pearl programs but i don't think that any of them are very useful for my employer i can attest to that fact i've met them so it goes back to this idea of your employer, right? Someone is paying you to create software. Someone is buying that software or the output or whatever, the, the downstream value created by that software is being sold to someone. And if it's not being exchanged for currency of some kind, then we have no evidence that it provides value to anyone. Uh, one of the domains that I find fascinating and complex is economics. And that's one of the things they talk about over and over is the value, the, the amazing power of free, giving it away for free. You don't know how much somebody actually values it. When people start paying for it, then you know you've created something of value to someone. And so that's kind of one of my measuring sticks among many. Yeah, I maybe I'll just pile on with one more one more thought here. Um, if I were to walk into, let's take a car mechanic, and take in, I don't know, I, I drive a Hyundai. Let's say I drive it in and say, you know, I'd like the oil replaced, and I'm waiting in the waiting room, and the mechanic comes in and says, you should really gold plate your engine and replace it with a a, a race car engine. That that might be true for what he or she is optimizing for. They're a mechanic and they think like this car could be great if it had all these things. But again, I'm the one paying and really I just want the oil change. The, I don't want the gold plating. I don't want all these bells and whistles. I just want you to solve my problem, which in this case is an oil change. And I think that this gets lost. We, we talk a lot in software, I feel like in absolutes. Good tool, bad cool, good pattern, bad pattern. Good solution, bad solution, and uh, maybe the, the solution part's valid. But um, I, I just think that there's so much context that we neglect um, when we talk about delivering value. And uh, I'm not sure how I'm going to connect this back all the way. I'm, maybe I'm on a tangent here a little bit. But the thing I would just say is um, one of the things I've appreciated about this, this group, this software crafting group, is that we do spend a, a, a not small amount of time talking about what does it mean to actually deliver value to your customer? Have you considered how much you could tow with your Hyundai if you replaced the engine with a V8 diesel? I haven't because it's not my problem. <laughs> well, it's someone's problem, presumably. Oh, fair point. Oh, <laughs> Matt, so. always focusing on your own needs. <laughs>
So if uh, crafting software is not about art, um, another thing that I think it really is not about is elitism. And it's a, it's a really interesting thing because one of the things that, that I, like I get a lot of pride out of writing really well-crafted software, or at least what I believe to be good software. For me, crafting is really a, a type of elite work. It's like, hey, you are doing your best work here. You're doing it the best in the context of, you're not just making art, but you're delivering value. You're doing something that your customer needs. But it's not about elitism. It's not about saying, oh, there are only so many people who are capable of doing this and no more. But rather, I have found that the community is very much about like lifting each other up and, oh, let me show you this cool thing. Hey, let me tell you about this idea that will improve your whole system. I don't even work for the same company as you, but I want your company to, to succeed. I want you, your software developers to be elite in the best sense of the word. Yeah, I completely agree with that. For me, the whole thing is about the idea of creating a community where everyone from someone who has never opened an editor and never written a single line of code to someone who's been doing it for 20 or 30 years feels like they can contribute and receive value from sharing with each other. I, I do think our group runs the risk of coming off as elitist. And really, I think that occurs when we're communicating our ideas. If we come across as saying our idea is better than yours, um, then I don't blame people for feeling like we're elitist. But I also think there's a way to communicate that, hey, this is just an idea I have, and it seems to be gaining some traction. And it's hard to stay there. Um, and, and I get it. We're, we're not always going to be perfect. But the way we communicate our idea, I think does have an impact on the efficacy of our idea. Definitely. But Matt, have you considered the fact that sometimes I really just do have a better idea? I hadn't. <laughs> <laughs> Not in all the years we worked together. I mean, that does tell me something. I mean, I've told you I have. Okay. But okay. I really haven't. <laughs> it, I, I'm just glad it's out in the open. I mean, me that's the real thing. That for me, I'm getting value right now by finally hearing this. Yeah. So I agree with you, Matt. I think that in general, my observation of the movement and what makes most sense to me is that it is not a naturally elitist group, but we have to be careful. We have to be I careful so of how we're, how we're presenting ourselves and, and be mindful of what it looks like from the outside looking in or even from the inside what other people are thinking about you know just kind of the social dynamic of the group well to wrap up our discussion i just wanted to ask the question why do we care about this topic enough that we wanted to create a podcast you know i'll start i've been thinking about this one a little bit i i do not believe that all methods of creating software are created are, are um, equal i believe that certain approaches are better than others and it depends on context and all of that but it, it's not all equal and since i believe that and uh, it makes me start to think about the people that i'm writing software for you know so right now it's an employer and these people are giving me money and i'm giving them back whatever my employer is is oftentimes looking for ways to maybe give me more money or more benefits and not me because I'm Matt, but just me because I'm an employee and they're always trying to do better. And I think that we owe the same in return. 
when we when we take money for some for some job in this case you know writing software and if all the methods are not created equal then i believe it's uh, now it's upon us to figure out the best methods for for our particular situation so why is crafting software important for me because i believe it's the the best way to sort of honor the agreement that you've entered into with an employer or a customer or whatever they've given you money and they expect you to deliver on the agreement in the best way that you know how. I completely concur with all of the things that you just said. Those all resonate very deeply with me. I would like to add that my hope is that I can find someone like me who didn't know what he was doing or didn't know what she was doing. And I can save them some of those many years that I spent wandering around thinking that I was the biggest fish not knowing I was in the smallest pond and thinking I was doing well by getting a rough draft ready and shipping it. I feel, I, you know, I feel like I need to give back something to the people who I can't pay back. I can't go back and teach the handful of specific people who I won't name how to do TDD because they still know, but I can, help someone else maybe be exposed to concepts that they don't otherwise have an opportunity to learn about. Yeah. Yeah. Same with me, just in the same way that I was talking about earlier, where the craftsmanship group really like opened my eyes and helped me in a lot of ways. My hope is that this podcast will reach out to some other people. And I've worked with Matt, I've worked with Dave for a number of years now and I just, I really like the discussions we have. I feel like we really get into this topic and have something to say that might be useful and interesting to other people. So I think our collective hope to speak for everybody is that you'll enjoy this podcast and that it will help you understand a little bit more about this idea of crafting code and that you can take some things that you hear from, from this podcast and apply it in a very useful way. Uh, into your life, into your work, uh, into your code. So with that, we're going to wrap up the first episode by recommending that you should also join a community of professionals by attending a software crafter group or meetup that is near to you. And for anybody listening who is in the uh, northern Utah area, the Utah SC group at utahsc.org meets the first Wednesday of each month in Draper, Utah, and we hope that we will see you there.